Hello. Hi. You're listening to A History of Mental Illness. Um, welcome back. It's been a little bit of a hiatus. Yeah, it has. So, just to get into today's podcast, we want to go over our disclaimers again. We are not doctors, and nothing that you hear on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. We strongly encourage everyone to establish care with a provider. Do not try anything you hear on this podcast without consulting your physician, and this podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. In this podcast, we will at times discuss serious issues like suicide, substance abuse, sexuality, and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. If you encounter anything that triggers you, please reach out for help. Here are some resources you can access. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Or you can text Mental Health America at um, 741-741 and text MHA again to 741-741. All right, so it's been a few weeks since we've been here. We did have our interview last weekend, and my intention was definitely to get this up sooner, but work this week was a little crazy, and it did not happen that way. Yeah, it happens. (laughs) So our goal is to get back on track after this week. We are going to be doing another interview this weekend, so next week's episode will also be an interview which i'm pretty excited about um and we'll put some more details probably this weekend as we're doing the recording we've got that coming up um again we're still looking for if anybody is interested in being on the podcast let us know typically the week before we actually release the next episode we are putting up a preview which is the topic of what the episode will be about if it's something you have experience with let us know and if you have any ideas for any topics also let us know that too i got a pretty good suggestion in our inbox that i think i may want to tackle here soon oh exciting yep but for today we're going to finish bipolar disorder going into bipolar 2 um tackling the main difference between bipolar 2 and bipolar 1 Uh, Bipolar 1 is a diagnosis that requires at least one lifetime manic episode um, where hypomanic and depressive episodes may occur but are not required for a diagnosis. Bipolar 2 requires at least one hypomanic and one depressive episode but no manic episode. And that's what we're talking about today? Right. So if if there's a manic episode, then we're not talking about that today. Okay. Uh, bipolar 2 is not a less serious form of bipolar disorder. It is just a completely separate diagnosis with its own struggles. Okay. Just some stats about it real quick. Um, a 12-month prevalence internationally is about 0.3%, and in the U.S. it's about 0.8%. Uh, average age of onset is mid-20s, slightly later than bipolar 1. Most often begins with a depressive episode, so often about 12% of individuals receive a diagnoses of MDD initially. So first they're diagnosed with major depressive disorder? Right. Okay. Um, because it just prevents as presents as that depressive episode. So they oh. go to their doctor and then... Uh, yeah. Because they haven't had any other episodes yet to indicate otherwise. Yeah, they're just like, something's wrong. I'm going to go see somebody about this. Okay. Um, number of lifetime episodes is higher than bipolar 2 than in bipolar 1. 
Um, the interval between mood episodes tends to decrease with age. So the, the older the patient gets, the more episodes they tend to have, um, especially in bipolar 2. Um, approximately 5-15% of individuals with bipolar 2 disorder have multiple uh, four or more episodes within the previous 12 months. This is specified as rapid cycling. Approximately 5-15% of bipolar 2 patients will have at some point experience a manic episode and their diagnosis will change to bipolar 1. Does that make sense? Yeah, so like a small fraction, anywhere between 5 to 15 out of every 100 people with bipolar 2 will at some point have a manic episode and then they'll be changed bipolar 1 disorder. Right. Okay. Um, the risk of bipolar 2 tends to be the highest among relatives with individuals with bipolar 2. Approximately one-third of individuals with bipolar 2 disorder report a lifetime history of a suicide attempt. The lethality of attempts is higher in bipolar 2 than in bipolar 1. And I know in the interview that we did, um, John has bipolar 2, and he was talking about, which you'll hear in the interview, about the basically like the family um, genetic aspect of it mm-hmm. in his family. So for the di- diagnostic criteria, the good news for everybody who hates this part of the section is that I'm not going to read the definition of what a manic, a hypomanic, or a depressive episode is because we did that last episode. So if you need a refresher, you can go back and listen to that. Um, the main thing that I'm going to point out here before I go down to the... Um, other criteria is that for a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder it is necessary to meet the following criteria um, for a past hypomanic episode current or past hypomanic episode and for current or mass past major depressive episode but again there is no um, manic episode it's just hypomanic and depressive so like I said we're gonna skip defining what those episodes are. If you really can't remember, need a refresher, go back and listen to that part of the last episode. But aside from defining those, the bipolar 2 disorder criteria are A, criteria have been met for at least one hypomanic episode and at least one major depressive episode. So there have to be um, one of each, essentially. There... B, also should never have been a manic episode because we know that that will automatically change the diagnoses like you were talking to, to um, bipolar Uh 1. The occurrence of hypomanic episodes and major depressive episodes is not better explained by schizoaffective disorder, schizophrenia, schizophreniform disorder, delusional disorder, or other specified or unspecified schizophrenia spectrum, and other psychotic disorders. That was criteria C. And then criterion D, the symptoms of depression or the unpredictability caused by frequent alteration between periods of depression and hypomania causes clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So you can see that essentially the diagnoses are the same except for the manic episode 
Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. The screening tools also are going to be pretty similar. We've got the MDQ, which is the mood disorder questionnaire, which is the yes or no inventory. And that essentially is because we're working with most of the same um, presenting features, I guess you could say, that you can screen it the same way. And that would also help you to distinguish, you know, are we looking at bipolar one or are we looking at bipolar two? Because you could kind of suss out if it was a manic or hypomanic episode. The differential diagnoses, we have major depressive disorder. I think this gets to what you were talking about where a lot of people get misdiagnosed essentially, and or I'm sorry, initially, and that's basically because they haven't had the hypomanic episode yet. And also, um, they're going to be having depressive symptoms if you are assessing them and they're in a depressive episode. So you have to be careful to kind of maybe get some inventory if there have been any other mood episodes that you need to be aware of. Cyclothymic disorder, which we haven't covered, but it is in the same family of mood disorders. It is essentially where you're having mood episodes, but it's, or I'm sorry, you're having symptoms, but neither of them are enough to be a hypomanic or a um, depressive episode. So there are some symptoms, but um, not enough to meet the full episode. Does that make sense? Yes. Then you're going to have schizophrenia, spectrum, and other related disorders, psychotic symptoms that present in the absence of prominent mood symptoms. So basically what they're saying is you've got to look at if there are any mood symptoms present. If they are having psychotic symptoms or features, but there's no mood symptoms, then you may need to look at schizophrenia. Panic disorder or other anxiety disorder, which we're actually going to talk about in the comorbidities. Um, substance use disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. This one, hypomanic episodes can mimic ADHD symptoms like rapid speech, racing thoughts, distractibility, and less need for sleep. So you need to assess, do the symptoms represent a distinct episode or change from the normal? Then personality disorders, um, you kind of look at it similarly to HD, ADHD in that, are you looking at a change from the normal or is this behavior happening within a certain episode? So the more... Um, sustained the symptoms are, the more you would consider a personality disorder where if you have someone um, fluctuating and it's not a sustained mood. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. And then other bipolar disorders such as bipolar 1. Alright. Now you want to tell us about the comorbidities? Sure. Um more often than not, bipolar 2 is uh, co-occurring mental with other mental conditions uh, and disorders. Anxiety disorder is the most common. About 75% of individuals with bipolar 2 um, have an anxiety disorder. Okay. It is also at a higher rate than the general population, obviously. 
Um, approximately 60% of individuals with bipolar 2 disorder have three or more uh, co-occurring mental disorders. And then 37% of people with bipolar 2 have a substance abuse disorder. 14% have a lifetime eating disorder, uh, with binge eating being the most common rather than bulimia or anorexia. Mm, that's interesting. With them being 60% have at least three co-occurring mental disorders that overlaps with a lot of things. So, mm -hmm. But most commonly, it seems anxiety disorder mm -hmm. is prevalent. As far as treatment options go, um, treatment for bipolar 1 and 2 are more or less the same. As many of the symptoms uh, are being treated are the same. Depression and uh, mania and hypomania are not necessarily needing to be treated as much, right? Yeah, I mean, they would do the same thing to treat those symptoms mm -hmm. as they would in bipolar 1 disorder. So there's not much variation in the treatment. So, all right. Well, that is pretty much it for um, our part of the episode today. The majority of it is going to be our interview with um, John, who I am really excited he was able to come on the show. Um, so before we go over to that, I want to go over help finding providers as always, you can go to Psychology Today, select from the drop-down box if you need a therapist, psychiatrist, treatment center, or support group, and enter your zip code to see a list of providers. You can use Talkspace, which is available on Apple App Store, Android, and desktop computers, and Doctors on Demand, which has an app, or you can use it online, and it does accept insurance. What about our podcast credits? We'd like to thank... Chance Wilbanks again as our research assistant and Purple Planet for our intro and outro music and also John Weaver who we got to interview. And also um, in our interview was my brother Jonathan who helped with some questions and kind of sat in on the interview so thanks for jumping in. You brought some really good comments and questions to the table. And now over to our interview. Hey. You're listening to A History of Mental Illness, and tonight we're excited. We have our first guest. We have Jonathan Weaver. Or hey. Hi. How you doing? <laughs> and we also have my brother, Johnny, with us. So Hello. <laughs> we have John and Johnny here, and we're excited because tonight we're actually going to be having just a discussion with somebody who actually has experience with bipolar disorder. So it's just going to be casual fringe chatting. I've actually known John for like 10, 12 years, something like that. It's been a while since high school. Yeah. We're getting old. Yeah. <laughs> we are very old now. So, um, so thanks for listening again, and we'll just jump into it. I wanted to first have you just kind of give us your story, like when you first started experiencing mental illness, or maybe you just knew something was different or not quote-unquote right so uh, it really goes to a bigger thing than just me um, I'm from a family that my dad's family has a long history of bipolar mm -hmm. like almost everybody 
My dad's 15 out of 16 kids. Oh my gosh. And he basically, almost everybody in that family has some sort of mental illness and most of it's bipolar, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's bipolar plus other things too. Um, So growing up, I grew up with a bipolar father and also I grew up with a bipolar uncle. It was also a very suicidal person and I had to experience Mm -hmm. as a kid um, dealing with that and witnessing that. Um, so growing up through that, um, finally getting into like my high school years is when I started, or even into my late middle school years is when I finally started like showing signs too of the illness that, you know, my father told me I had my whole life basically. Mm -hmm. So that's always been, um, that's where it like started for me was basically like going, being in Christian school and mental illness is not like, I don't even know in public school like at the time when this was happening if mental illness was that like focused on either, mm-hmm. but there was no help for being mentally ill at Christian school. Yeah. And not knowing that, going to Christian therapy, it was more like read some Bible verses. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's like, how's that going to help me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it you know, it's it was a very interesting uh, childhood. You know, growing up with a with a mentally ill father, mm-hmm. and also like becoming mentally ill myself. Yeah, I think that's interesting because our dad, like, if I had to diagnose him, I would definitely say there's mental illness there. Although he like refuses to get help, but he definitely has symptoms of depression and obsessive compulsive disorder, and it's one of those. I think like nature and nurture things where like not only is it probably in your dna but you're also growing up and seeing it all the time oh, yeah. and that makes it it's just an interesting dynamic i think where those two cross especially in families and it makes you wonder if a lot of it's learned behavior like mm-hmm. did my mental illness start to break out because of learning how my dad acted and seeing how my uncle acted and other family members acted mm-hmm. I mean, I know there's underlying symptoms I've always had, but it's also, like, growing up with a dad that says, I'm just going to go kill myself. Like, I can't tell you how many times my dad said that to me, to the point where that became um, almost, like, foreign to me. Like, I didn't, the words had no meaning to me anymore. Right. And I started using it. Mm -hmm. And I started using it the way my dad used it, and it took me until an ex-girlfriend was like, you can't do that to people. You can't say you're going to go kill yourself just because you want attention or whatever you want from somebody. I had no idea that I was using that as like a coping mechanism that I learned from my dad. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's tough growing up and it's tough like kind of differentiating between is it me or is it the stuff I'm learning, you know? Right. How much of this is actually me? Yeah. And your point about seeing um, a religious Christian therapist that I think is interesting and I know Johnny probably remembers this too that there we had chapel days on Wednesdays (laughs) and they talked a lot about you know there was one sermon I remember and it made me angry because it was saying how you shouldn't be anxious you should trust trust in the Lord trust in God and it was it was very dismissive of mental illness in general yeah oh yeah and I I grew up with that and 
just like, you know, pray about it, pray about it. Mm-hmm. What happens when I pray about it and I'm still feeling the same way? It's mm-hmm. not changing. The prayer is not changing me at mm-hmm. all. Maybe for some that works right? as a placebo effect. I'm sure it does for some people. But for people like me that already was questioning Christianity at the time mm-hmm. and the beliefs and asking questions and not getting answers, it only furthered my frustration and right. furthered my like mental illness. Yeah. Was the first doctor that you saw or therapist that you saw a Christian? The first, I went to a Christian counselor, I think it was. Um, and I don't even think they could prescribe anything. It was just like, tell us how you feel, why you feel in this way. And then got recommended to a Christian therapist mm-hmm. and then eventually got on some like, I think it was like Wellbutrin or something like that to mm-hmm. begin with. Um, but it was just like, dude, it was just weird because it was never, um, always God brought into it. And it was like really just like off-putting when you're like, especially as I'm getting older and actively pushing um, religion out of my life. Mm-hmm. I don't want it. I just want to, I want to get help. You know, right. I want help for my mind. I don't need help with my relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> right. Um, so that was like really tough because, you know, at the time my parents were very much Christian and, um, didn't want to send me to anything other than like a Christian school or a Christian Mm -hmm. therapist, like had to be all in line with religion. And it wasn't until, um, I think I was like 16. I think I finally left Christian school and then I found out that I had ADD. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the first thing I found out I had with bipolar tendencies. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's a, that's a fun mixed bag of, uh, of, but with my bipolar, I'm hypomanic and I'm depressive, and those swing back and forth throughout mm-hmm. the um, my my year. Yeah, <laughs> basically, I have cycles. Yeah, which from the research. So clarification: that's bipolar too, right? Yeah. Okay. Which is exactly what this episode is about, right. and I think what we've seen in the research we've done is that people tend to think of bipolar as like throughout the day even minute to minute your mood changes and like you said it's like cycles and you could go a really long time without being depressed or hypomanic i would describe it as like seasons and but unlike seasons where you know when the seasons start and begin i don't know when i'm going to be hypomaniac hypomanic and i don't know when i'm going to enter that depressed field or and then there's like spaces in between them where i'm just normal Mm -hmm. i'm fine um I like being hypomanic. I know that sounds <laughs> weird, um, but I, I'm a writer, so that's actually when I'm most creative. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that are creatives out there that also have bipolar or other similar mm-hmm. mental illnesses. That it's like, for me, I also I don't I feel like mental illnesses can be embraced to mm-hmm. not just like stigmatize. Exactly. And um, when you start to learn, like, and I've had this for now. 10 plus years, um, I know when my cycles are coming. I know when I'm hypomanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when my depressed, as like when I'm depressed, I prepare for it, you know, mm-hmm. mentally. Um, but it's all about just like learning the, the, and I'll say this, this is, I am unmedicated right now um, for my illness. Um, mm-hmm. Partly due to my experiences with uh, free health clinics. Mm-hmm. I'm a millennial, so I'm poor. Um, <laughs> And therapists are expensive, they are. and uh, medication can get expensive. And um, 
you know, I tried to get, um, I was, um, when I was ADD, when I was first prescribed, or not prescribed, uh, what is it, uh, diagnosed with uh, ADD, um, I was on Vyvanse's. Mm-hmm. And those were helping, and then, but I was also like, it's taking away my personality. I yeah. don't want to, you know, it's taking away my personality, so I stopped taking it. But now I wish I could just get it. But now it's like, if you go to a free health clinic, if you, if you can't find your records, I don't even know. If, I've been trying to get my records from my, that doctor, um, but they won't prescribe you anything like that because it's a controlled substance. Mm-hmm. So that means I'm... They're like, here's some Wellbutrin. It's like, that doesn't work. Right. Trust me, I know. And I feel like, I know I've expressed this to Chris before about taking medicine. I'm like, I guess I'm glad that I'm taking medicine because I feel like I'm better than I ever have been in terms of my OCD and depressive symptoms. But at the same time, it does feel like a block, which I think is why a lot of people stop taking it because I remember my most depressed, which was right after high school, I would just write and write and notebooks full of writing and felt so creative, but I did feel terrible. So it's like, uh, it's this trade off of being for me, like I couldn't function without the medicine. And I know that some people can, but in my hypomanic states, um, I, I'm focused on a project, like mm-hmm. whatever, whether it be podcasts, um, writing, um, creating events and stuff like that. Um, I do like Comic-Con events. So it's like I, I get work done and I'm actually like, it. I don't hate myself. I actually wish I could be like that all the time, but mm-hmm. just like, but it's that's the, that's, that's the curse of bipolar is anything that wrong happens. That's usually when... Yeah. That's usually when the depression sets in, and then it's like a reset. Yeah. And then it's like, I'm back to normal again, and then let's get back into the cycle of building up to another hypomanic yeah. episode. Um, uh, I think the last hypomanic episode I had was probably at the beginning of this year. Okay. Um, and I was working on, I can't even remember. Oh, I was doing a Comic-Con event, and I was like, you know, all in that headspace. Um... But it's like, you know, it doesn't, it's not like it happens, like you said, it's not like, like today I'm not going to flip on you guys and go, like hypermanic, like, but, you know, it is a time thing. Do you feel like yours are, I know you said it's like seasons, you can't really tell, so would you say yours are inconsistent? I know they're usually about this time, I'm kind of actually coming out of a depressed stage right now. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, I'll probably be heading towards another hypomanic episode in fall time around my birthday time. And that's usually when it happens. Like, that's So it's, it's like, I do know generally when it's gonna happen, mm-hmm. so I can kind of prepare for it. Um, but you, you know, when you're in it, it's like, mm-hmm. you're in it. Um, I'm just better, I'm getting better with the depression side of it, um, mm-hmm. being able to handle that. Um, Cause that, that's the hardest part about it. It's like the fun part is when you're doing all like, you know, working on my products. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, that's all I'm thinking about. The, the, the other part about it is when you're, you can only think about bad things mm-hmm. and that can be rough sometimes, especially, you know, when you're in relationships, um, um, that can be hard, especially on partners. Um, it's hard to date, um, being a bipolar. Mm-hmm. It is, um, because 
you're asking a lot from someone else to deal with you. Like, yeah. it's like, yeah, there could be a couple of times where I'm just like depressed for two weeks and don't want to do anything. Can you, can you accept that? Mm-hmm. Can you be there for me? Like when I need you? So it's like, that's, it's, it's hard. That's a hard thing to, um, to ask. And then if you date another person with a mental illness, then you're both like, yeah, <laughs> that can be even worse too. <laughs> that was the big thing when Chris and I started dating within the first couple of weeks. Cause I guess it was maybe two years before I had gone into the hospital, into the psych ward. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, maybe that's the kind of person I am now. <laughs> maybe I am somebody who's going to end up in the psych ward again. I don't know. And so I told him, you know, like, I have this, and is this going to be a deal breaker for you? Because for some people, it is. Oh, yeah. I've, I've had people just can't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Get out get out of my life. It's like, I'm already, I'm already dealing with enough. I don't need your baggage on top of me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and some people don't know what to do, and it's like, it sucks because you want the relationship to work out, but at the same time, it's like, they don't, they can't understand it and you know what she asked me that i was like uh no that's not a deal breaker at all and i had no idea what i was getting into (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i'm glad i stuck with her but i had no idea what what it meant at the time because i hadn't had a real big history in mental illness at the time and do you i mean i mine hasn't been so bad but i think you can probably see now there are things that he knows to do or not do or let me know about so that I am okay and if I'm having a rough time like mine is major depressive disorder so I don't have any mania symptoms but I'm like yeah like there are going to be times where I'm just depressed and you might have to like either just wait for me or try to help me pull out of it and they you have to find up be able you have to find a partner that's willing to do that and that can be hard yeah, it is. It's uh, because a lot of people just want it to be simple and easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like when they see, especially with me where I'm so, I'm actually very much like, hey, I'm bipolar. Mm-hmm. Like I don't hide it from people. Um, I don't think people should have to hide um, from their mental illness. I think it should be acceptable. Um, and I think a lot more people have it yeah. <laughs> than, uh, and I've met people that are like, have you been to have you got counsel counseling? <laughs> like you should probably check that out. You know? um, but yeah, I mean, and also with family too, it's you know it can be an issue. Um, but it's it's just about. I, I think my biggest thing is is trying to get uh, a dialogue out there about mm-hmm. what it means to be bipolar, and that when someone says they're bipolar, that doesn't mean they're some psychotic person. Mm-hmm. Some people think that when you say I'm bipolar, they're like, "What, you're gonna go kill somebody?" It's like, no. It just means <laughs> it just means that like my brain doesn't tick the right way sometimes. Yeah. But it's like people automatically jump to think it's like associate it with like sociopaths and, mm-hmm. and psychopaths. It's like bipolar has nothing to do with that. Exactly. Now, they, now a sociopath or psychotic could be bipolar too. Right. But that has nothing to do. Yeah. That that it's just like it's hard when people um, don't have the knowledge of what you know what the disease is like to have and you know it's that we're just normal people trying to survive just like everybody else you know which i think the news is really bad about doing that especially if there's a mass shooting or anything like that they're immediately like what's the history of mental illness what did they have and it's like well it's 
that is probably not why they did no. the act that they did. We do need to address like the issue of access to mental health care, but there are other things that happen in somebody's yeah. life. And then that, when they do that, it makes everybody who has a mental illness like it's only hurting us when they say that. Mm-hmm. So it, it is one of those things where it's like sometimes I'm scared to, to tell people that I am, mm-hmm. but as I'm getting more and more open, like I, I'm starting to do poetry, um, work on my first book, and the book's about literally it's a metaphor for what it's like to be um, bipolar. Oh, that's so awesome. the poetry swings from from like high points, low points, and then mm-hmm. there's these in-between dialogue that's basically what my brain is thinking. I'm trying to do my best to like show what it's like through write, through my own personal writings, mm-hmm. like what it's like I go, what I go through pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, which I was gonna say, if you want me to read one, I got one yeah. that is about, I would this is um, one that I got, it's in the, um, the poetry journal Anxious Poet Society. Oh, that's awesome. And it's called Madness. And this is basically, um, this is my, this is what bipolar feels like. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll start. Mad, madness dances with my thoughts, a chaotic rhythm between sane and normal. The battle of the mind consumes me every day. To you, it just seems like I got the blues. You know nothing of the suffering. The pills make me numb, but the latter is much worse. An explosion of mania, exuberant jubilee of the brain until the crash. I'm broken, trying to rebuild. Just keep a smile on, don't give it away. And it, you know, it's not like the like most beautiful poem in the world, but it's how I feel about yeah. my illness, and it's like, it's my my I have a love and hate relationship with it. Yeah. Do you feel like writing and being creative is a good catharsis? It is. It's, it is my therapy. Um, I actually had a therapist tell me this one time. It's like, why don't you write your poetry, write whatever you want to write, and then go up to an open mic and just mm-hmm. read. And that's what I do every now and then. When I get to the stage where I just need a release, mm-hmm. I'll take some of my poems. I'll go up to a, this bar called The Evening Muse in Charlotte, and um, I'll go up on stage and just read a couple poems. And, I almost black out when I'm reading it just because it's like it's just coming out and I feel like I'm releasing it to the world and it mm-hmm. feels so good and afterwards I'm just like okay I'm good for another couple of months I'll be mm-hmm. back I'll be back to therapy uh, in a little <laughs> bit. and I think that's important you know everybody I think there's this concept right now of like self-care but people make it seem kind of you know, like, oh, you need to take these baths and do facials and work out. And I think self-care is so much more than that, that we're kind of limiting ourselves when we think about it that way, because it's different for everybody, number one. But two, like using your poetry as a tool to be your therapy and kind of own your own illness in that way, I think is really powerful. Well, I know people who use, like, yoga. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, like, it's whatever you can find that is an outlet that lets you feel better about yourself mm-hmm. and, and make you not feel so... <laughs> I don't feel alone when I'm out there up right. on stage. And people usually come out and like, that was a good piece. You know, it makes mm-hmm. me feel good. Yeah. Like, and so what, whatever it is that, that, like you said, that self-care, whatever 
works mm-hmm. as long as it's not hurting anybody else you know exactly you know you know do it i know people in the kink scene oh. i know it's weird but like they have their weird stuff to act yeah. you know it's, it's whatever you know makes you feel better and yeah. uh find your outlet <laughs> yeah i think that's really important but also take your meds and stuff too like that your doctor right if you have i'm not advocating medicine. advocating don't not to take medicine yeah but i appreciate that you even shared with us that you're not taking medicine right now because the thing that people forget about healthcare in general, which like I see two sides of it as somebody that works in the healthcare field and we're always advocating for people to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. But then the social work side of me says, you know, we're supposed to be empowering individuals to make those choices. So we just tell people what their options are. And then everybody you know, decides what's going to work for them. And it sounds to me like you found what works for you because regardless of if you were on bipolar medication or not, you're still going to have those ups and downs. Yep. When, so has writing always been your go-to or did you try other stuff? Uh, I mean, writing has always been a part of um, my life since I was a little kid. Like, I remember just writing my first uh short story at the beach when I was like in elementary school mm-hmm. and um but ever since then like that's always been my go-to just to escape mm-hmm. um I've always wanted to be a writer and as I got older I started realizing that like oh I can I can write some poetry I, I, mm-hmm. I write short stories too I do other things um but poetry is where it comes it's like comes from the soul comes mm-hmm. from, like it's translations of how I feel and I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in ways that like are cryptic sometimes mm-hmm. And I like that because, like, it's like every time I give a poem to somebody else to read, they get something that I didn't intend for them to get out mm-hmm. of it. And that's what's beautiful about it to me is that, like, whatever whatever's wrong in my in my brain translates to something else um, good in someone else's brain. Exactly. You know, so that that makes me feel good. It's like my my brain works, guys. Yeah. It's not it's not uh, diseased. It's just different. Yeah, <laughs> it's just on a different operating system. Yeah, I think. That's why I love music. So I'm not really musically inclined. I don't play any instruments. Um, I like to sing, but not professionally or anything. And I love to listen to music because it very much is up to your own interpretation. And sometimes I'll be listening to a song and depending on my mood, I'm getting something totally different. But it does feel spiritual in a way. Like you're getting something from it that you need at that point in time. I think music definitely is something that you know, I know a lot of people um, who are musicians that also are um, have mental illnesses, and they say the same thing. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, when they're shredding their guitar, you know, that's like their therapy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And or whether they're just listening to music, that's mm-hmm. their therapy. But it's uh, uh, it, I, I love that there's so many different ways for people to find their outlets mm-hmm. out there, and just like, and continually being able to find it, like you know ways that make you feel better basically mm-hmm. chicken soup for the soul exactly <laughs> you've got to find your own chicken soup now you talked a little bit about free clinics and things like that yeah. which i think this is an especially important issue in mental illness because um like you said we're a part of that millennial generation and insurance is expensive and yeah. right now i'm fortunate to work at a job where I have insurance, but even like I haven't 
been to my last couple of therapy sessions, I kept rescheduling them because I don't have money for the copay right yeah. now. So I'm like, okay, I'll just like move it until I get paid or something. Even though they had said, we want to see you back in two weeks. I'm like, okay, well, it's going to be six weeks because yeah. that's when I can afford to see you again. And so what has your experience been? If you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that. Uh, it's, it's not good experience. Um, I tried, I tried because my uncle works in the uh, mental health. And he's like, yeah, you go down there, they'll get you your medicine. Your medicine. And um, it was just, they treated me like I was a criminal, basically. Um, and it was, it was just being shuffled in and out like you're just like nothing. Mm -hmm. It was, it, it didn't make me feel like I was getting help. Yeah. And then it's just like, you go into the doctor and then they're just like, blah, blah, blah. They, they go off with the questions and they're like, okay, here's Wellbutrin. Mm -hmm. She didn't, she didn't diagnose me. Mm -hmm. She just gave what she thought would, you know, make my anxiety go away. But I was like, there's more than just the anxiety, doctor. Right. And then I told her, I was like, you know, it's like my, I have my records. Um, but I was like, when I was 17, I don't even know where to find them. I don't even... Mm -hmm. It's been it's been a journey. So like, if I can find those records, I can get um, the original pills for my ADD that I was um, mm -hmm. prescribed to, um, which is what I need because it's like that's also part of it. Being bipolar and then having the ADD, like it's like it can mess with you, like mm -hmm. memory wise and like I'm sure you hear me stammering a little bit. Like my my mind is like racing. I'm trying to like grab bits mm -hmm. and pieces, but um, but yeah, just being there, it just it wasn't the environment. I've been to actual, like, you know, therapists. And mm -hmm. I was like, they're, it's a warm, inviting environment. Going to the free clinics is like, I mean, it's just what you would imagine a free clinic would mm -hmm. be like. And just, there was no care. And that's what, I know they do care. Mm -hmm. I know they're trying. And they got to deal with a bunch of people coming through in exactly. and out. Um, but it's just, I wish we could, uh, I wish the country as a whole could get a better system for getting people mental help. Because, like, not everybody that's coming to the free clinic is there trying to get, you know, oxy, or whatever, not oxycontin, but uh, vivances or stuff to, like, you know, get yeah. messed up on, you know. Yeah, I can understand that as a problem, but it's like, there's people that actually need it. Right. And you also got to think about all the millennials that, uh, you know, were diagnosed with ADD as kids and stuff, and now, like, our minds are all messed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, yeah, it's it's not a fun experience. It's, uh, it's kind of, that's, that kind of makes you feel dehumanized a little bit when you go there. Yeah, that's, we, um, when I interned at the health department, we, or I did HIV case management, but we would make referrals out as needed and we would refer people out for mental health. And the thing is a lot of our patients were insured or I'm sorry, uninsured or underinsured. Mm -hmm. And so we would refer them to free clinics or um, Medicaid providers. And like you said, it's not that they don't care necessarily, but they're seeing so many people and they don't necessarily have time to sit and have that therapeutic conversation with you and run a full set of assessments and tests to see where you are and so a lot of people I think just don't even go back I never went back experience yeah I I just I didn't like it it didn't I didn't get what I what I needed and like it just didn't I don't know it didn't feel uh 
like what I wanted to be a part of. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe one day I'm going to get insurance here soon. <laughs> so the problem is I work for another millennial who is a entrepreneur, mm-hmm. built the brewery that I work at. And um, so like, you know, he can't afford insurance right now. We're just, we're just growing as a business. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's how a lot of millennials are right now. We're just like, we can't afford to get insurance. Mm-hmm. Our businesses that we work at can't afford to get insurances unless we go to like a big, you know, you know, conglomerate or whatever, um, which I don't like working at. Because <laughs> that exacerbates my, yeah. my ADD and bipolar when I work with like very high restrictions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, I need to be in a free environment. Yeah. Well, and I think, honestly, like, to get good health care, the prerequisite shouldn't be that you work for a certain kind of company. Like, you should just have health care because we all should have access to health care. That's good, not just... Nationwide health care. (laughs) Yeah. Health care for all. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Maybe one day. (laughs) Yeah. But it is unfortunate because I think so many people just go without help and we know for instance that like I wish I could remember the name of it but it is a prison in California and it actually holds like they basically consider it like a mental institution yeah because so many of the people are in prison but they're really there because they have a mental disorder and because they weren't able to get any access to help, they ended up doing, you know, petty crimes or things to get in prison. And at least there they get some kind of help yeah. in prison. Which is kind of sad that they have to go to prison to get help. Yeah. And that's where, you know, honestly, if we had mental health care for all, then I bet you would have a lot uh, fewer people in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Because if people are able to just, especially with some of the more... Not that bipolar isn't severe, because it is, but some of the more, I guess... Schizophrenics and stuff like that. um, That contributes to issues like homelessness, something like that. If we could get people... PTSD, soldiers coming back. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the fact that our own soldiers who are sacrificing their lives, some of them can't even get the help that they need. Exactly. It's pretty sad. And I think think that's one of the biggest issues in our country is that we um, we don't have the help. Yeah. And I hope one day we'll be able to have the help for everybody. Yeah. Um, it's a dream, but, you know, that's also something that's probably far, far away from now. Yeah. We can work towards it, though. I think just speaking out about it like you're doing and trying to be more open, which is kind of where I am, what I'm trying to do now is instead of just hiding it, there's nothing to hide. It's a part of who I am. Yeah. And the more I think we talk about things like this the more hopefully it will be accepted or at least people will just be aware. Well, and you're seeing a lot more uh, celebrities too um, mm-hmm. step out and admitting. I, I'm actually very um, happy about that to see. I can't remember what one of, one of the rappers came out recently and said he dealt with, um, with similar issues that I deal mm-hmm. with. And just seeing other people, bigger people finally coming out and, mm-hmm. and that's huge. When you see a big celebrity come out and say, I have bipolar, mm-hmm. that makes me feel better. It makes other people with the same disease feel better. So now that we're getting to a point where people are able to just um, come out and just be like, hey, I have this. I suffer with this. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Let's work together and, like, you know, get help for everybody. Exactly. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, that's basically my bipolar uh, 
story. <laughs> That's, I, I Sorry, I didn't mean to like jack uh, the whole conversation um, from you guys. I know. No, no, it's good. Yeah, I think, um, well, there's some questions too that I was kind of thinking of. You know, we talked about the religious aspect of it, and, and clearly that plays a big factor. But did you also feel like as a guy, and this is kind of some of the ways that I've felt and I've heard people talk about it, that it was also harder to admit that there is a problem because you feel like you kind of have to be this pinnacle of strength in these different relationships that you're in. And so it's not that you don't want to be open about it, but exposing yourself to that weakness as well on top of already questioning your kind of role, I guess, in society as a whole. Did you ever feel that uh, as well? I definitely felt that when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, especially at when I was at Christian school. Um, because, you know, so you got to be a man, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like you, you can't show your weaknesses. Um, but definitely over the past 10 years, like I'm like... I don't care. I'll show you my weaknesses. It's like, but when I was younger in high school, um, yeah, you don't want, you don't want to tell people you're bipolar. You don't want to tell people you, you are diseased. Um, because you know, high school people are mean. Um, but I definitely, what you're saying, I definitely felt that a lot. Um, more so at Christian school than once. So once I got to public school, I found a group of weirdos that could be my friend, but, uh, on that Christian school, um, there's not a lot of weird when you're in a small Christian school like we were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's like five or six weirdos like me in my, you know, in the whole school. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's like we, not just the, uh, not just my class. Um, so yeah, it, it, and that kind of sucks too. It's, it's when you can't, um, especially for people that do feel that now, where they can't admit their that they're mentally ill because they're scared that they'll be less manly. Mm-hmm. Um, I hate that for people have to deal with that that are you know older you know our age now or even older than that like that's that's got to be something that sucks to deal with and I hate that for them because I think if we've learned anything over the last two years despite how much progress we feel like we've made in America it's still very much a macho kind of culture and that men do feel that that they have to be strong especially in christian school where the Mm -hmm. or christian background where the man is the head of the household and in a lot of ways leads the women and the women the woman relies on the man so can't admit weakness yeah well then even in the christian school aspect too because i know this is something that i mean they would even talk about because every morning in homeroom we had prayer requests and the teachers would talk openly about their spiritual struggles and stuff and i know sometimes when we would talk about you know there was a teacher there obviously won't say her name but you know she had a son that had committed suicide and when she would talk about it you could tell he clearly had you know some sort of pre-existing condition the way she would talk about it but when she told us about it and we were in we were very young at the time we were like 13 probably a very inappropriate age to even talk about this um you know she was saying how he was possessed and she could tell he was possessed and I mean, even being at that age, you know, fortunately, I grew up in a situation where we kind of we recognized mental illness. It wasn't anything that was foreign to us or strange. But your experience at the at the Christian school, did they? And you're talking to them. Was that ever a thing that was brought up that what you were experiencing was like a spiritual struggle and like a demon fighting for your soul kind of thing? I I wouldn't say as much as in the school, mm-hmm. but I went. I also the same school. I also went to church there too, and. Um, 
I I de I definitely had experience with that. So like you've got it's like not demons, but it's like you're struggling, John. You're struggling. You know, it's like you got to let Jesus back in and like <laughs> it, it was. And I remember like like there was this lady who she was probably mentally no, she was mentally ill. It was during one of these like you know. Halloween Christian event. Um, <laughs> Drunk or treat? I don't think they did that. It's called Judgment House is what it was called. <laughs> oh my gosh, like the play. I can yeah. say that because it's a thing that's yeah. all well, across like the known, country. Yeah. Um, we had one at our church. It was called Eternity. Terrifying. Yeah. Church was the same. And like this lady was outside and she was just like frothing out the mouth and like she, she believed she was possessed and you saw them like, but more than likely she was had mm-hmm. mental illness. And it's like there's a lot of people that like in the in religious sex um, are definitely misdiagnosing people with hey you've got you're possessed by a demon no you probably got schizophrenia you should mm-hmm. probably seek out some help for that um, although placebos do work so maybe their exorcisms actually make them believe that um, that they're cured I don't know but I remember when I was little it was before um, we started school together. I would have been elementary school, probably maybe middle school. Mm-hmm. And so at that point I had been diagnosed for some years and they took me to the church to have the pastor pray over me and, and you know, like he mm-hmm. laid his hands yeah. on me. And uh, I was very unsettling as a child. Oh yeah. Like I was like, oh, this is good, I think, but also terrified because what's wrong with me that yeah. <laughs> they have to do this. So it is, I think it's growing up mentally ill and in a religious environment has its own set of struggles sometimes. Not always, but yeah. sometimes. Depends on the church you go to, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Did you have, you said you had questions. Do you have other ones? I mean, it was, it was more so along those lines, you know, just because I think the biggest thing for me is like when we grew up, growing up in that Baptist kind of environment and then trying to reconcile your beliefs as you get older. Mm-hmm. I think by the time... Uh, even by the time that we started there, I was in eighth grade, I really already kind of didn't feel connected to it. Like I remember sitting in church one service and looking around, everybody lifting their hands. And I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't connect with this. And I've just never really felt that. Um, But just knowing that there are so many kids that grew up in that environment that genuinely are taking these beliefs on to their families and kind of passing it down that these problems don't exist. And that it's something that can be solved with, like, prayer. And again, to your point, you know, belief is very powerful, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. And that some people are able to believe so strongly that they can get rid of these things, that it, it, it works. But those people who can't find that and knowing that there are those kids out there, they're going to suffer and, and struggle. And they don't feel like the demon is still inside Exactly. And yeah. they're going to blame themselves because they yeah. weren't spiritual enough or they mm-hmm. couldn't get close to God. And I think that's, you know, just more, like, sad to me, just knowing that those kids are out there unfortunately and it's going to take them a long time to well it's even worse in like third world countries like you see what happens in like africa mm-hmm. um or they have these christian preachers that are like you know making up these most absurd things and people believe them and like you know it's really just probably mental illness that most mm-hmm. of these people have which is not attacking religion <laughs> um i'm agnostic i think but. it does religion for some people it really works and for other people it clearly doesn't i would say for me it didn't work to help address any mental illness issues if 
anything, it made me wonder, like, why, what did I do to deserve this? And why doesn't God think that I should be allowed to get better? Why do I yeah. keep ha having to be like this? And like Johnny was saying, you know, for those kids that can't kind of work that out in their mind, it is mm -hmm. tough. Is. And even, I mean, there are non-religious reasons that people would feel like that, too, in certain cultures where mental illness isn't recognized oh, yeah. or accepted at all. Or in even some communities within Some the rural States. communities, mm -hmm. maybe. <laughs> um, you know, go to certain hollers up in West Virginia, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I doubt they have a mental health care facility in some of those places, mm -hmm. you know. It's, oh, like, it's, it's funny, because I just spent the last... Or, about two months back, I went to West Virginia for two weeks, so I flew in on Monday, traveled around, so I went to both North and South, and just even talking about the disparity there, I mean, I don't think I saw one, like, major hospital when I was there. I was yeah. in um, Charleston and then in the, the college area up North, but, I mean, just, like, meeting some of the people that have, like, been down there their whole lives, and it's just so dilapidated, the community, because I believe that, like, West Virginia was a giant mining community, and then kind of when all yeah. that collapsed, mm -hmm. um, you know, the people are just stuck there, and it's just... and not to get like too much in the political side too but then they've been dumping all the um there's that report that just came out where they had prescribed enough um i can't remember the medication oxycontin, oxycontin yeah. for like every man woman and child in this county to have like seven thousand pills yeah. a piece yeah um which actually just contributes to a problem of mental illness because mm -hmm. you may have people that have mental illness they don't have access to care now they're self-medicating with this that they have or they didn't have a mental illness and now they have a substance abuse issue. Yeah. So it just exacerbates and creates problems. Yep. I was thinking about it too when we were driving from Raleigh to Charlotte. We drove through, it wasn't on the interstate. I was like, we're never driving this way again <laughs> because it was the these small towns. And so it's what, not even a three hour drive. But I think the major hospital we passed, there's a bunch in Raleigh and then there was nothing until we got to Monroe, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, like, where do these people go for health care? Well, it's like, and that's a lot of the time in these, like, small-knit communities, my, so, luckily, uh, I have a family up in Christiansburg, Virginia. Mm -hmm. There's parts of my family that are like that. They're just, like, in kind of these hollers, and they don't, you know, take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, like, if they, they don't believe they have mental illnesses, even mm -hmm. though they might have them. Um, and that's the scary part is like when you're when you don't have someone there to like tell you hey maybe you should get help like a parent or something mm -hmm. or a friend or something right. it's like when you're just all like and maybe it's a bunch of people in this community that has a mental illness and no one's helping each other out it's like and there's no hospitals mm -hmm. or anything you're kind of like stuck and you're only making it worse mm -hmm. so and that's you know it's just kind of sad that there's people in our own um, country that don't have access to that kind of help yeah and I think everybody in this country should be able to have access to help. Yeah, um, it's definitely not that any illness is not important, but mental health, because it can create so many physical health mm -hmm. problems as well, which we know, we talked about that in our other episode of bipolar, that we know that people with bipolar one disorder, for whatever reason, they're still trying to figure out the link, but are predisposed to certain physical conditions so yeah. maybe if we could help treat people we could be preventing these other problems too yeah definitely uh, yeah so to kind of talk about it too so for me because i'm not officially diagnosed with anything but with in line with much of our family i 
do have panic attacks, I suffer from anxiety and arguably depression. That's a heated topic between me and my wife. I think sleeping as much as I do is probably fine. Um, but for me, I started having these panic attacks really bad in high school and I wasn't sure what was going on. I would just know like all of a sudden I just felt like I needed to just be out of there. There was nothing I could do. Like everything was not doom and gloom, but it's just like almost like there was just tunnel vision and I could only see out of this like little speck in front of me and I just go sit in the bathroom and just wait. And as I got older, like into college, I started realizing not so much what was triggering the events, but when it was about to happen and then I could kind of like calm myself down so as I've gotten older I've gotten better about that and I've not really struggled with it since but I remember like high school and college it was just terrible because I couldn't like I didn't even know why this was happening I didn't know if it was serious um so and when you're experiencing these bouts that you have and you're going from the manic stage to the to the depressed stage and you said that you kind of have as you gotten older gotten linked up with it yeah and you were talking about things that you do to prepare for each of these cycles so what are you know kind of those like triggers in your mind of when you know when it's about to happen and what are those preparations that you take yeah that's great uh so definitely um well hypomania hypomania just kind of comes on its own mm-hmm. right it's like and it's usually when i'm working on a project mm-hmm. and i'll just start hyper focusing on it um, the depressed part, that the only way I can like prepare for it is just like I know this sounds like anti uh, what I should do, but I I kind of like keep myself locked up for a little mm-hmm. bit, just like you know I just stay at home and I and I, I know that sounds anti like you don't want to stay depressed, if I just stay there in a comfortable zone, a comfortable places, and I have comfort places I call mm-hmm. them. So the, my work, the brewery, I go there and grab a beer because I, I feel comfortable there. Mm-hmm. But before that, it was my sister's house. I These are safe spots that I know mm-hmm. I can go in and be around people that aren't going to make it worse. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's about surrounding myself with friends um, that, that know my illness and know that, like, that won't get mad at me if I don't show up to the party, right? Mm-hmm. If, if I have plans and I don't show up, they know that I'm in a depressed state and they're not going to, like, make me feel so that's a problem i've had people in the past for like they would blow up my phone and that's only going to make it worse for me mm-hmm. like if i if i don't answer the first time and you keep blowing my phone up and i'm not answering i'm not going to answer at all period and i'm going to turn my phone off and you're not going to hear from me at all um and that's be, that's just because i can't that's part of my stress when i'm in my depressed period is like i can't deal with like mm-hmm. if i want to be alone let me be alone mm-hmm. <laughs> So it's being alone actually does help me, um, but then I get to the point, and that's when I know I'm coming out of it, where I'm like, I gotta get out of the house, mm-hmm. and finally I get to my other safe spots, and I start getting around my friends and stuff. So it's basically about not being, not surrounding myself with people that I know will exacerbate my depression. It's riding it out as long as I can without getting worse. Right. Because <laughs> like sometimes it's like. Try not to start new relationships with women while I'm on that depressed yeah. uh, path line. <laughs> Yeah, um, so little things like that, mm-hmm. and you know, just uh, just being aware when it starts, um, when the symptoms start happening, just like when I know that, like, you know, the inner consciousness is like beating yourself up, you know, it's just like you gotta like kind of stop thinking about it. I think your point about surrounding yourself with the right kind of people is mm-hmm. good because. I very much sometimes I just can't be around people and it's better for me not to yeah and I had a friend who was like basically 
and this would have been like in my early 20s she was like you don't make enough time for me so I don't think that this is gonna work out and it hurt and I didn't realize until I had friends who we would make plans and then I would be like you know I'm just really not feeling up to it today and they would be like that's no problem we can reschedule yeah that I was like oh like it's okay to not want to do everything all the time and there are people that are going to be okay with that too yeah and so like if I have someone that's just like tearing me up for like for not answering a phone call or something I was like that's not somebody I want to be around with you got to understand me and I'll understand you and like find that common bond um and boundaries and relationships in general are so important, like all kinds, not just oh, yeah. romantic relationships, but family, friends. And yeah. if somebody can't respect your boundaries, then like maybe it's just not healthy in the first place. Yeah, right. Sometimes it's better to cut off, you know, something that's only hurting you. Yeah, <laughs> even if it's hard at the time. Yeah. It might pay off in the long run. Definitely. Well, to even extend that to like a work environment, so you're talking about. You know, we're already in a situation where most millennials don't have health care. The expectation is that you're on your parents who may or may not have health care until yeah. you're 26. Um, but, you know, even even going into the workforce where you, you have these disorders that require time, much like having the flu or something like that, there may not be a time where you can go into work. And then, you know, have you ever faced uh, like a situation or a stigma with that where you know, they don't think that you're calling off because you legitimately need the mental health day, but they, that you're just kind of skipping work, or have there been any kind of, you know, I guess repercussions in that way? This is why I purposely work at local, <laughs> locally owned businesses. Mm-hmm. I work for my dad um, from like 16 to 24 um, as, a, as a driver um, for his uh, re- import repair shop. And then I started, I, two, two and a half years ago, I started working with um, just a friend um, that opened up a brewery. So I was like, I, I, I'm surrounded by friends, mm-hmm. like everybody I work with, that's, but I had to do that because like, I could not work at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to work, I tried to get a job at, um, at Boston Market one time as a caterer driver and I got in there and I just like already, I didn't, I already felt the environment and I was like, I can't work here, I can't mm-hmm. work here. So it's like, it, that part kind of sucks for me because it's like, I'm going to have to try to always find um, or make my own businesses. So, but that that's part of it. It's like, I could never work in like a corporate mm-hmm. environment because it would only make me, it would make me a lot worse, <laughs> basically. Um, which sucks because I could make more money in certain places. Um, but, you know, I'm sorry, I'm doing my own thing. I do trivia. Mm-hmm. So I get, I do like, I have gigs. So when I'm doing things that I like and love, I don't have to worry about like anybody. And you know, if my if I tell my boss that I need a day off for like a mental day, he's got me. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like I'm lucky to have that. Um, but like you said, not not everybody is lucky to have that. And it kind of I can't imagine you know working at Walmart and like trying to explain to them what a mental health day is. I'm sure that. <laughs> Well, they're already getting, like, docked pay for all these different things. But, I mean, Gabby, maybe you can even speak to it because you, I think, work more on that side. You know, what is advice for people who do who are more in that corporate situation but do suffer from these disorders that wouldn't allow them to go to work? What are, you know, alleys or ways that they can take or what are things that protect them um, from, like, repercussion of job for, like, not showing up because, you know, you have a panic attack and you just can't get to work and you obviously don't have a doctor's note that says that or just kind of thinking, you know, for people out there who may have the situation. I think it's hard because 
you obviously, I would never recommend that somebody disclose that they have a mental illness if they felt like there would be negative repercussions from saying it or mm -hmm. um, that they would be in some kind of danger. But um, a lot of mental illnesses are classified as a disability and when you're applying, you can actually check that bipolar, major depressive disorder, OCD are on all these. I know a lot of people are hesitant to check that. Um, it's not supposed to impact your employment is what they say. Um, and I'm not gonna lie on a lot of them. I've checked that I don't have a disability because I'm scared too that it's gonna impact my chance at employment. Mm -hmm. I have been fortunate in the last couple of jobs I worked at that my bosses were fairly understanding. One, I worked at a pharmacy, so they knew the medication I was taking anyways. Yeah. Um, but if I needed to step out, if I was having a panic attack, that was an option. Mm -hmm. And where I am now, I knew I was at a good job when I texted one morning. I had relocated to a new city, and I was like, honestly, I'm just struggling today. I didn't sleep at all last night. It's like one of my first nights in my apartment, living by myself for the first time. And my boss was like, just take care of yourself. But it's hard because you never really know how your boss is going to react until you tell them and I've been places where you know people didn't understand or didn't care and for me it was always at a time where I could either find another job or you know I could quit and wait around until something came up but that's not always an option for people. I, I like to say that honesty is the best policy but I also know that in some places it probably isn't. It's probably scary to disclose that to a boss. Mm. So I always kind of check the waters first, I guess, to kind of feel out my boss yeah. and what kind of person they are, and then kind of disclose as needed, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And it is hard, and sometimes, you know, I definitely probably took some days without reasons at other jobs before. Um, but just always try to do a good job when I was there. Yeah. Which I think people think, oh, if you have a mental illness, your work quality might be compromised. But I feel like we're like hard workers. Especially when we're hypomanic. Or right. <laughs> You're probably super productive then. Yeah. And so at what point, you know, for both of you, did you feel like you went from being controlled by, you know, this um, disorder to where you maybe not even always feel in control, but to where you feel like you had kind of won, where you were in a spot where you felt that you were being the you that you wanted to be, I guess, as opposed to, you know, because you talked a little bit, you don't like to take the medication because you, it doesn't make you feel like who you are. And because um, I remember growing up seeing Gabby take these different medications that she would get prescribed and she would just be like a totally different person. And now the Gabby that I see is like the person that I remember, you know, from my childhood. She's not kind of like the robotic person from like high school that just the medicine was making her so I feel like I see that and I see you know how far she's come and how she seems to be in control of uh, her anxieties and you know talking about it more openly so I guess again for both of you at what point did you feel like you started to take control of that situation I mean for me it was probably about I think honestly it was about uh, 20 21 years old like, I finally, like, um, I had a rough teenage, uh, those early, or those later teenage years, um, just dealing with 
losing friends um, and stuff like that. So that put me in a very bad mentally mental state. Um, and so it really was about when I turned 21 where, uh, like, I finally was starting to, like, notice what was happening and understand the cycles. And so it's was, so it was 2009 now, so, like, yeah, about eight years of uh, of hard work of understanding who I am and I feel a lot better than I did when I was 20 like at, at the beginning of that phase um, you know I would never have been able to do something like this back then because I was just kind of after my, my friend killed himself and after that uh, it was like slowly rebuilding and going that was the last time I was in like counseling mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry. And uh, it, it was a rough, rough thing, but uh, but it taught me import the, the value of mm-hmm. life, and um, it made me never want to be suicidal again. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, when you lose someone like that, um, it makes you realize how precious life is. So I think that's part of the biggest thing is like mm-hmm. I see how valuable the time we get here is, and that's part of what made me like feel like I'm winning now. It's like, I, I, I like life now. (laughs) For me, it was a little bit later. I was 22 or 23, I would say. Um, and I don't know what happened. It's like, I just kind of figured out, like recognized a lot of the things that were going on and realized kind of like you said, like with panic attacks, like I know what this is and I don't have to be afraid of it and it's going to be over soon and the more I recognize the feelings for what they were and just kind of being like I know this feeling this is depression this is just kind of bullshit and I need to just let it happen and get through it and then get to the other side and I still have to do that a lot but like you said it's just recognizing it And is there, like, an end point, I guess? Because I'm sure it's, like, an ever-growing process you just, like, learn as, as you go on. But is there, like, an ultimate point that you kind of, like, imagine in your mind of, like, this is where I ultimately want to be? Or, I mean, since we're all still, like, late 20s, early 30s, there's a lot of time to go. I mean, I just want to be alive and kick in and <laughs> maybe have my book published. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's great. I don't know I'm always working towards something right now I guess I'm trying to figure out what I want to be working towards it's kind of how this podcast came into being um but I just want to be happy and have a family of my own one day how does Chris feel about that (laughs) good I'm I'm in the same boat I want to be happy and have a family of my own too that's good (laughs) because hopefully we'll be doing that together (laughs) All right. Well, did you have anything you wanted to add? I I had a great time being able to discuss yeah, so uh, much for mental illness with everybody, and it's really cool because we all went, us three went to high school together, or a little bit of high school together, and school together. Um, just being able to come back and being able to discuss issues that mm-hmm. we've suffered and how we're all like on a better path. Exactly. And, and that if you're listening to this right now and you experience the same thing, um, don't ever you know get help if you need it um but you know just listen and talk to your friends and you never know who around you is experiencing it i mean john and i happened to just come up on this by chance he saw that i was doing the podcast and we've known each other for over a decade now and i had no idea so if you talk about it you might be surprised who all around Mm -hmm. you also is suffering too 
All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, our first guest, and thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate having you. Thank you for it's having me. It's been a pleasure. Um, so, yeah, check back for episode preview next week um, so you can get a sneak peek at what we'll be talking about. Bye, guys. <laughs>